of your eye, huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. So, yay! Four. Yes. Uh, we're cruising right through this season. We um, are. And this one's a very interesting, unique uh, movie for us. Uh, multiple things. It's the oldest movie, black and white. It's silent. So it's a true. Lot of good stuff. So The Phantom Carriage. Yeah. It. I believe it's the oldest film I have on the list. Oh. Yeah. It's like, what, 1925? Something. 1921 21. Okay. and it is a Swedish uh, silent movie to let you know how old that is the director's daughter whose name was Guji Lagerval died in 2019 at 101 years old I was going to say it's 100 years old this year she was born three years before this movie was released so um, and it's still making the rounds yeah this movie is actively playing um, at the Cinematheque in uh, Cleveland Institute of Art on the 19th of really? December. Yeah. Wow. In the theater and, on the big screen. And like The Innocents, this one's in the Criterion Collection. Yes, it is. Uh, I, like, I noticed that like somebody listed what the spine number was on it, and I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. But uh, yeah, it's... Um, Again, this is not a movie for the teens. Um, you're, if you are, you're going to sit down, you're going to look at it, you're going to be like, this is, doesn't even really register as a horror movie. But yeah. um, it's a historical horror movie. If you take a look at uh, movie genres, horror movies actually started in the late 19th century, uh, around 1895 or so. Um, and most of them were just little tiny snippets. They didn't last very long. They might have only been you know, three to five minutes. Uh, but a lot of it was like someone walks into a house and there's ghosts or skeletons, you know, here and there, and they walk through and they're spooked and they get out and that's the end of the movie. So (laughs) you're not looking for giant complex, uh, what we would think of as horror movies, but in the day, this would have been considered a horror movie. And and I, I read, uh, this was an inspiration for Ingmar Bergman to become a director. Uh, so much so that Ingmar Bergman would, uh, like, religiously watch this movie once a year in the summer at his own private theater, in you know, on his on his grounds. Which, you know, back then that was a big deal because you had to actually own the celluloid. Yeah. There was no VHS copy of this. Right. You had to thread it up and watch the whole thing. And like you said, for today's audience, it's not going to hold up as, oh my gosh, that's one of my top 10 horror movies. It, it just isn't. Uh, but from the historical aspect, it's cool to see because it was much more intricate than a lot of black and white movies. It was a heck of a lot longer. Nothing else. Oh, yeah. Uh, Charlie Chaplin claimed it was the greatest movie ever made. Wow. Yeah. And he was a guy who knew a lot about movies. I mean, he- everyone... I think some of him is like the hat wearing kind of penguin walking kind of dude, but he was a movie mogul all on his own. He started a movie company that's still with us today. Partly yeah. started him and a couple partners. So. Yeah. Um, it's also a morality play. Uh, the entire movie has, uh, has a moral to it. Uh, not unlike a Christmas Carol. Uh, in fact, I said, it's kind of like a Christmas Carol. It's a wonderful life in the shining all mixed together in one big pot. It is based on a novel. Uh, The novel was written by an author by the name of Selma Lagerhoff, um, and it was called Thou Shall Bear Witness. Uh, She was very well known for capturing life in rural Sweden at the time, and she is the first woman to ever earn the Nobel Prize for Literature. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, she 
signed away all the rights to her unwritten books in 1919 to the Swedish Cinema Foundation. And at the start of World War II, she gave her gold medals, um, which were actual gold back then. Like one was a Nobel and one was a Swedish Academy Award. Uh, she gave them to Finland to help them offset the price of fighting the Soviets for them to sell the gold to wow. help fund the war. Yeah. Wow. Now, now, see, that's somebody that deserves a Nobel Peace Prize and someone to remember. Yeah. You know, I can name some other people more recently that aren't as yeah. noble as that. Um, she was so popular and powerful in her day. The supernatural elements of this movie according to Sweden's censorship laws at the time, should have been cut or edited or changed, but the censorship board didn't want to actually go up against her, so they left everything as it was shot. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so that's Selma, La- Selma Lagerhoff. Uh, a lot of her movies are actually out there uh, in Swedish, you know, ancient Swedish cinema. The movie was directed by Victor uh, <laughs> Sjolström. Yeah, it's got a J right after an S. So For, uh, forgive thinking... us. Neither of us are Swedish. <laughs> well, yes. Um, he was the actor. Uh, he plays David Holm in the film. He was the director. Uh, he wrote the screenplay. In fact, when he wrote the screenplay, he traveled to Legaroff's home and presented it to her, acting out all the parts in its entirety to get her blessing on the project before he would actually proceed with it. Wow. He went on. I I think that's kind of cool because I never thought of old movies like that being based on books. And, you know, for me, I, I thought this, it felt like a Grimm's fairy tale. Um, or not necessarily Grimm's, but a Aesop fable or something like that. You know, it, yeah. it just, it definitely fit the redemption Christmas ghost story thing that was really big and popular. At the time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he directed 55 films in total and acted in 43 and had writing credits in 25 of them. So he was pretty prolific. And something you have to remember when we go through like the stats in these people, a lot of these people were already older and established by the time cinema started. So he wasn't coming at this as like some 17-year-old model who won a shot to, you know, be in a movie. He was already, you know, older when this stuff started. He was born in Sweden and moved to Brooklyn as a child until his mother died when he was seven, and then he returned to Stockholm to live with relatives. Uh, he did begin acting at 17 and made his first movie when he was 33 in 1912. Uh, he directed over 40 movies in Sweden, many of which ended up lost before he moved to Hollywood. So somewhere out there, who knows, maybe someday someone will find a bunch of Victor Sjolström films that were tucked away, hopefully. That would be really cool if they did. So, some added, you know what? The what makes you sad though is you know some of these people or their relatives die, and others are clean. And says, "What's this old junk?" Toss, Toss it. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he directed several more movies when he got to Hollywood, and then he grew, got tired of how the world of direct directing was changing. Uh, you know, sound started, and stars became more demanding, and things. So he returned to Sweden and just acted, which he did up until his death in 1960. His greatest acting role was in an Ingmar Bergman film called Wild Strawberries in 1957. Yeah, and you want a list of esoteric films, go look up Ingmar Bergman. Oh, yeah. I mean, the only one I remember seeing is Seventh Seal, um, but I recognized a few of the others, but just from the descriptions and the the posters, I was like, "Hmm, that's a interesting movie you want want to talk art house films yeah exactly yeah um to prepare for his role as david holm he disguised himself as a poor homeless guy and lived among the impoverished and destitute in stockholm for like a month just to see what life was like that's much more dedicated than the hollywood actors that get a professional coach to come in on their time (laughs) you know (laughs) right um 
Hilga or Hilda Borgstrom plays David Holmes' wife, Anna Holm. Here's the problem we're going to run into. She was in 82 other films. You're not going to know any of them. Yeah, not from Super old, and they're Swedish. So, Torres Venberg played uh, George, the the guy who plays the present phantom carriage driver. He was only in 11 movies, the last being in 1940, but he died in 1941. So, and another one of those guys who started, you know, when the industry was very young and just didn't last because he was already older. Astrid Holm plays Sister Edith. And she was in 15 films, uh, the last of which was in 1947. And then she became a recluse, just withdrew from society. Too much of that. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know how demanding Swedish cinematography is. Yes. And then, again, I love these little stories. Helga Brodfelt plays the waitress and is an uncredited role. She just plays the waitress. This was her first film. She went on to do film in 108 other movies over 36 years. Wow. So an uncredited role launched her into this just giant career that spanned 36 years. That's funny because I believe Harrison Ford's first movie role was an uncredited. Uncredited. Yeah. It was a waiter. Yeah. Ingmar Bergman claims this is the film of all films. This was like the top of the line. It has a hundred percent positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's one of the 1001 movies you must see before you die by Steven Schneider. Turns out it's a book. <laughs> I, look, I, I was like, what is this list? I looked it up. It's, it's a book written by some guy. Wow. Named With a good Schneider. name though. Yes. Um, the churchyard that they use in that movie, uh, one of the sets from the movie, was built in a studio and it was left up for years afterwards. Other films would come in and just use it. Um, so it shows up in a lot of places. It's kind of like um, old Tucson out in Arizona. Right. Right. If you've ever been there, you'll you'll see it in a thousand different westerns because they right. use the same thing. So today's uh, canon conscious people would say all those are in the same shared universe. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. From the graveyard. It's oh, a, what a Nexus portal. We watched 30 Days of Night last night, uh, you know, just as an aside. Um, and I was like, see that girl there? Do you recognize her? And Price is like, well, kind of. I'm like, it's the girl from Triangle. And so then he was saying, you know, because she survives 30 Days of Night, <laughs> then she must have moved to Florida. <laughs> if so, you know, that's kind of yeah. a rough existence for her. Uh, post-production on this film took five months, which at the time was an eternity. Sounds like it. Yeah. Because of the ghosts. I could see that because I was very impressed with the ghosts for the time period. Uh, there aren't too many movies that do that good of special effects. at. Well, and the special effects were managed with double and triple exposures um, because optical film print printing wasn't even a thing for another 10 years. Right. Yeah. So they couldn't just sit there with the film and overlay it and stuff. They had to actually use mirrors and crap to bounce things onto the lens while they were filming it. Wow. That that actually makes it even cooler. Yeah. <laughs> and the last little production note I have on here, there's a Norwegian heavy psychedelic rock band called We. Um, they did a live performance of the music at a screening in Trondheim, which is in Norway. They wore cloaks, and the lead singer sang all of the words on the cards as they came up. <laughs> I would love to see that. that would yes. Be, if we can find it, that should be our bonus. Our Again, bonus bonus. Steve had put this, this thing out, this call out there. If you happen to have been at that performance, <laughs> comment below. <laughs> Let us yeah. know what that was like. And it's funny you say that, because I heard it, and I'm like, okay, I know this isn't the original music, at least the cut we have, because it was very uh, spacey and sounded I'm like, there's no way that's from then. Because back then, the silent films, uh, they had orchestras in the pit playing. So you had piano and strings and horns and or an organ a lot of times. Uh, so this was very synthesizer-based, the cut we have. It's true, but the music that they attached with this, because as you said, this is like the only only version that's out there 
yeah. the the music is genuinely pretty creepy and yeah. it runs consistently throughout the film they do this thing with like this this rap rapping like tapping sound that happens a lot like yeah, yeah clock like and you're like yeah that's adds a little bit to the creepiness um the movie is set in the swedish town of landskroner on new year's eve um and they don't tell you what year it is but uh yeah you can almost date it a little bit just by looking at historically and the things that are happening uh it starts with a black screen and a title card well the credits roll first um, but the title card informs us that Sister Edith of the Salvation Army is on her deathbed. She is attended by her mother and one of her fellow sisters, Sister Maria, as she is dying of galloping consumption, which she had been struggling with for a year. Um, so this was filmed in um, like 1920, 1921. So the Spanish flu is still very much on everyone's mind. Uh, and you can still have people who have tuberculosis, so it's hard to say exactly what galloping consumption is. Well, um, consumption typically was tuberculosis. Right. And, and galloping was a type of that. Yes. I, I knew that from all the vampire stuff I've been studying. <laughs> you and your vampires. Hey, vampires cool, man. <laughs> uh, the Salvation Army. Which plays a, a critical role in this movie. I I dug into this a little bit. Was founded in London in 1865 by a guy named William Booth and his wife. At the time, it was called the East London Christian Mission, and it was made to bring salvation to the poor, destitute, and hungry by meeting their spiritual and physical needs. In an we know effort- you're hungry and starving, so let's pray. <laughs> Yes, in an effort to convert them. Booth uh, went by the title of general, which is where the whole military flavor of the Salvation Army started. And to this day, you know, people are soldiers and colonel, you know. Uh, The first Salvation Army meeting in Sweden happened in 1878. So that does kind of help us, you know, narrow the time frame down. It happened somewhere. This story takes place somewhere between 1878 and 1921. But they don't give a year specifically, uh, which I like right. because the story is very, uh, you know, again, like a Christmas Carol. It's something that can apply to today. And Absolutely. If, if I'm right, it was based on a Swedish folktale legend uh, that it was based mm. on. So uh, I like that too, or at least it felt like it. But when I was looking a few things up, uh, I thought I came across that it's based on. Well, it could be because the author, again, was very well known for writing stories that captured yeah. uh, life in Sweden at the time, you know. Yeah. So the acting in this is not, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons that I'm not crazy about Nosferatu, and it's not because it's a vampire movie, because I have to respect the traditional Dracula story, and Nosferatu is just a twist on that. But I don't like it because so much of silent films were recorded with over-the-top acting because yeah. the people who are directing are like, we have to depict what's going on, and the only way we can do it is by, you know, just going way over the top. Yes. <laughs> right. They don't do that in this movie. No, not as uh, much. Sister Edith is probably the only one who really overacts on a kind of regular basis. She's very, oh, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I don't, I can't, I can't sit there and tear it down too much for not being realist enough because it's 1921. But that is one of the things that I loved about this is that so many of these, you could take a still of what was happening. And it could be an actual photo of people just being people, you know, it does not feel over the top. Agreed. Um, Edith's sister, Edith sits up and asks the people who are present, which is her mother and sister Maria to go and find David home. 
And Maria and her mother seem aghast at this request. We don't know who David Holm is at this point. We're like, wow, I don't know why everyone's upset. And the mother asks uh, Sister Maria not to, because Sister Edith has given her life to help the Salvation Army and just let her last few moments be with her and her mother. But Maria can't not do what her friend is asking. And so she gets her uh, male counterpart, uh, Gustafsson, who is also in the Salvation Army. Um, he's also aghast that she's asking for David Holm on her deathbed. Whoever this guy is, apparently he doesn't have fans in this house. Right. But he agrees to help Maria go search the town for him. And Maria heads out into the town. Uh, they do a nice job of giving you a flavor for what the town is. Um, as she's moving through, it seems cold, it seems dark, it seems cramped, it seems impoverished, at least the areas that she happens to be going to. Uh, and they do this really cool thing when they're filming it, because most of the time it is shot in a, within a rectangular frame. Yes. But she shows up at this house, uh, Sister Maria, and when she comes to the house, she goes inside and they cut to a scene of her coming to the door. And instead of the rectangular frame, it's a round one, like bullseye. She's, you know, this is where she wants to be. Um, So she goes inside and it looks incredibly impoverished. There's two little urchins tucked away in bed, you know, and then sitting in the corner with her back to the entire rest of the room is this woman. And it really had this kind of Blair Witch vibe for me, you know? (laughs) And. Uh, very yes first of all this whole beginning i liked because the way they presented the story uh which is again uh, probably why this is such a favorite movie for such a long time it's different than a lot of silent films silent films were very linear uh you know start the beginning you know what's going on as an audience member every step of the way this had more of the flashback bits and so it's a little more advanced storytelling in movies at the yeah, it's actually, um, when I was listing things, I probably could have put this as a literary horror, too, because that's much more of a literary yeah. type of device that you would use in a book than it is something that you would have used in movies at the time. Yeah, very much. Um, Gustafson heads to the bar. So maybe this is who this David Holm guy is. He's at the bar, but he doesn't have any luck. Um, David Holm is not there. Maria, however, grabs this woman whose name is Anna, and it turns out uh, her name is Anna Holm. She is David Holm's wife. Wraps her up and takes her to see uh, Edith. And there's this scene where she's like leaves Anna in the other room, and then she goes in and she's with um, Edith's mother, and they're in the room. And Anna just walks in, kind of like stumbles in, almost in a trance-like state. And she walks over to where Edith's sleeping, and it looks like she's going to throttle her. I mean, like, her hands are, like, in these claws, and she's leaning over her. And Edith wakes up and embraces her. And there's obviously some sort of issue between these two women. We're not sure what it is. And she's saying, poor Mrs. Holm, poor Mrs. Holm. Um, And then Maria's like, I'm going to take her home. Just on the offhand chance, we find David home because it would not do for him to see her here. Right. Again, we don't know why. And I love also, you know, we know she's got tuberculosis and she kisses the lady all over the cheek. Kisses all over. Which, again, comes up later in a couple minutes. But I was like, oh, well, we understand germs, but we don't really know how this is transmitted, do we? Yeah. Um. Then we find out, we we finally see David Holm. He's hanging out in the churchyard drinking with two of his friends. And they joke about how scary it is to be among the dead waiting for New Year's. Because they're sitting in a cemetery drinking right above the church clock. And they make a joke about, you know, when it hits midnight, we're going to be the first to know because we're sitting right down here. Um, And to pass the remaining hour, and this is such a literary device from the turn of the century, David's going to tell his comrades a story. Just to pass the hour, I'm going to tell you a story. So he tells him about his friend, George. 
George was an educated man. And while he's telling the story, they do a flashback. So uh, they cut back and they show their show this. It's not actually David telling the story. George was an educated man. He had gone to a university, came back to town, but he liked to hang out with the rest of the homeless alcoholics. He enjoyed hanging out with them in like these boarding houses where they live. Right. Um, and I, I don't know that that's, I don't know if that was like a, an artifact of the time or the place, whether, whether Sweden was just like, you know what? Shit gets cold out here. So we got to give people places to pass out. I, I was wondering about that. I was wondering, cause the men's boarding house seemed a little weird and creepy a hundred years later. Uh, I mean, I understood what it was, but I'm like, wow, you know, people would probably flip out, you know, 20 men all in a room, uh, half naked. It looked like. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and George liked to hang out with these guys, but a change would come over George on New Year's Eve. He would stay in, he would sleep. Um, and you see David is there playing cards with his friends. They get into a fight and George gets up really upset and breaks up the fight. And he explains the whole premise of the movie right here. Yeah. And he's like, if you die on the last stroke of the clock on New Year's Eve, you become the driver for death's carriage for a year. You have to collect the souls who died and deliver them to death. And Which they I show a great premise. I love that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You, I might actually try and hit that date. Actually. It kind of sounds <laughs> like a good it, gig. If it's going to happen. Yes. Um, and so they show you a, a shot of the cart and it's ghostly and you can see through it again, not an easy thing to do in 1921. And they do the, the carts very rickety looking and they do this brilliant thing. They take the horse and they paint vertical stripes on it. I mean, not vertical, they, they, these diagonal stripes on it. So it looks like the horse is emaciated. Like you can yeah. just see its ribs. I was wondering about that. Cause I'm like, well, there was no humane society monitoring That's true. this. So no, but if you look at it, the horse is actually like, you know, it's just a horse, but, um, and then it says, this ends section one and the movie it turns out is broken down into i think five different sections yes yes so uh i thought that was really interesting that they're just going to come right out and say you know we're doing this in chapters and this is the end of the first chapter which was very common actually to do at least yeah uh, and if nothing else a intermission because you know people just can't sit for more than 35 40 minutes and I think it also lends itself to the uh, to the roots of cinema, which is the theater, which has right. always been done in acts. Yep, exactly. Agreed. And I, I must say right here, uh, these guys that were in the boarding house, how did the Swedish get such glorious mustaches? I mean, every single one of those guys had like this full big caterpillar thing growing. They were like very noticeable. Absolutely. <laughs> And it turns out that David Holm doesn't always have that mustache, as we find out here in a little yes. bit. Yes. Uh, which makes me wonder whether they filmed him later after he shaved it off and yeah. then spliced it in, which seems pretty advanced for 1921, or if yeah. his mustache was a fake throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I don't know. And, and I, I was going to say, for some of this scenes where the, the driver is collecting souls this is where i think it would lose modern audiences more because some of those were quite long it was like several minutes of the carriage going across yeah. the waves and just sitting there you're staring at it now 100 years ago when you'd only ever seen one or two movies probably ever in your life it was probably like still cool but i could see how that would be something that would lose people nowadays if nothing else yeah, so you're talking about this first section here. Uh, George says wherever he goes, he is greeted with sorrow and despair, meaning the driver of this chariot. And there are shots of the carriage making stops using second and third exposures so it's transparent. And death comes for the wealthy and the poor. There's a rich man who shoots himself, and there's a sailor who drowns. And you're right, they're very, very long scenes. But... This is very similar to um, 
the start of Star Wars or um, or the Black Hole, where you have these incredibly long uh, setting shots where the camera's going very slowly across the outside of the Star Cruiser. Right. Because at the time, that was super cool to look at it. You try to soak up as much detail as you could. Right. You know, nowadays kids see that all the time. So those shots tend to be a lot shorter than they were in 1970. Right. In 1921, right. seeing a, a a guy driving a cart over the waves of the ocean would have blown people's minds. Yeah, so that's exactly what I said. Uh, but I'm sure it looked awesome a hundred years ago. Yep. <laughs> they just sat there and just soak it in. They're like, wow. David finishes his tale by informing them that George died on New Year's Eve. Huh. That's odd. Then there's a shot of Edith complaining uh, that Gustafsson isn't back yet. And then we cut to Gustafsson, who sees David and his comrades in the churchyard. And he comes up and he's like, Sister Edith's dying. You, She's asked for you. You have to come. And David's like, I'm not going. Piss off. Get out of here. And so Gustafsson's tired of arguing with him and leaves. Then David's comrades are like, you've got to go. This is Sister Edith, and she's dying. She's asked for you. He's like, no. They get into this big fight. He takes a bottle to the back of the head, and that's the end of David Holm. And it <laughs> happens just as the church bells start to ring midnight. Right. And and for a fight scene, this was an over-the-top, exaggerated fight scene that you're like, oh, God. But, again, in the perspective of the time Yes, in the perspective of the time period, I'm willing to give those paths. They they didn't have the uh, Jet Lees they're teaching them, you know, right. how to do good fight scenes. Right. Uh, here comes the carriage coming right up to the lifeless body of David Holm, and it's driven by no other than no one other than George. George happens to be driving the carriage, and David doesn't seem to get it because George comes over and he's like, "You should." Put me in your cart and take me to the hospital. And George is like, no living soul rides in this cart. By the time I arrive, it is too late for a doctor. Um, and then George points out to David, um, you know that I'm dead, right? And then George says, you know what just happened to you, right? And it starts to dawn on David that... Um, Oh, I'm in a little bit of trouble here. I appear to be dead. And what time is it? Oh crap! Right. George but I love Klein... the fact too that the, he gets done and he lies back down on his dead body. <laughs> yes. Um. George claims that he is responsible for the condition that David is in, and we're treated to a flashback of David's previous life before the mustache. Apparently, mustaches make Swedish men into a homeless, jobless alcoholics. Yeah, Because yeah. Gus Gustafson doesn't have one, right? And and I, I this is one of the other things. And I, again, it's the filming, the age of the whatever. But it got difficult occasionally to tell people apart because just about everybody wore the same type of clothes, and they looked very similar on the film. Uh, you know, they're very bleached out at times, but it doesn't yep. give the perspective like we see nowadays, even on a two D film. So there were a couple times I'm like, okay, which guy is this? And which uh, woman is this? Is this Sister Edith now in the flashback? Or is this the wife? Or is this somebody, you know, there were, it it, it did take a little bit of paying attention to make sure you know who was yeah. in the scene and what time period. The scene. Yeah. And that actually does come up. Um, we're treated to a flashback of David's previous life without the mustache. He worked in a wood shop. He spent time with his family on picnics, teaching his kids how to swim hung out with his brother. And then there's a, a, you know, while they're at this picnic a little ways away is George with two other guys getting hammered and they're just singing and it's great. And apparently David starts hanging out with George. Um, one night, uh, Anna is there with their children eating dinner and the door opens and it's um, David's brother and he's drunk and he throws the kids away from the table so he can pass out on the couch right there. And she's so offended. She gathers the kids and walks outside only to find that David is passed out in the street, right in front of her house. And George is there and he like tips his hat to her and walks off. Like 
Oh, sorry, missus. I'm out. <laughs> then David wakes up um, in jail. He had to serve time for public intoxication. But the warden informs him before he goes that his brother is also in jail for killing a man while drunk. And because he considers David to be the one responsible for his brother's drinking, he's giving David the chance to serve his sentence instead of his brother. Which I was like, wow, what a justice system. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when the warden can do that. Who needs judges? But it must have been, or maybe it so is the culture, because death does the same thing. They're like, please give me just a few more minutes or let me, let, you know, uh, let me serve this other yes, thing. Yes, substitute. Uh, yeah, you know, he, he does it several times. So it must have been a thing with the culture at the time. It might still be, I, I don't know. Um, but I found that interesting that so many characters were <laughs> in, in a justice format, death or the, the jailer. Uh, like, yeah, you know, I'll make an executive decision and we'll let you serve his sentence. Whether yep. it be the carriage or whatever. <laughs> and David takes the offer. You know, very nobly takes the offer and promises to become a reformed man. And that's the end of part two. Yeah. Uh, part three starts with David getting out of jail and he comes home to find his door locked. Um, fortunately, they keep a key under the mat. Nice to know people have been doing that forever. Yeah, like thieves will never think of that nowadays. Yeah. (laughs) Pulls the key out, unlocks, and goes in to find that Anna has taken the children and left him. And he's like, if she would have just said she was out, that'd have been fine. But slinking off in the middle of the night like this, he's going to hunt her down and make her pay for this. And I do like how they portray his thinking and actions throughout the whole thing. Um, and, And the the... I guess, you know, the statement it could be making about drinking and alcohol. And that hasn't changed much for a hundred years. You know, a a lot, pretty much all of this story, this movie could be re-filmed nowadays, updated just a little bit with the filming and that, but the basic story. Yeah. It's timeless. Yeah. Which is why it's. Yeah. Um, George then points out to David how much his hatred for his wife grew over the year that he left to search for her. And then a year ago on New Year's Eve, the Salvation Salvation Army comes into town and sisters Maria and Edith are setting up a bunkhouse and their first client, David Holm. He comes in, they're like, do you want food? He's like, I don't need any of your food. And he's, I just want somewhere to sleep. He's belligerent. He's a complete ass goes in and passes out on the cot. Yeah. He does take his jacket off before he does because Sister Edith picks it up and Maria's like, uh, there's germs all over that and we don't have our sterilization <laughs> thing set up. You should just set that back oven. down. <laughs> yes. Sterilization oven. And yeah. I love I love this a couple things of this scene made me chuckle. Number one, uh oh, he, he's got tuberculosis, you're gonna catch it from the coat. Well, no, I'm glad you understand a little bit about germs, but that's really not how it was. Him coughing all over everybody did it, which they do bring up. Um, yep. But then it also uh, cracked me up. That's like, you know, here I am, this drunk, belligerent guy, and you're going to fall in love with me. <laughs> the, 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 the romance subplot could use a little tweaking and work. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's so odd because... She is this paragon of goodness. You know, she's seeking to reform people. And, you know, how often do you see this? We're like, here's this broken man I can fix. And, <laughs> right. you know, she takes the coat despite the warnings and stays up all night patching it and fixing it. And um, then. Now, you know what? I don't know about you. But my wife that I'm already married to would not stay up all night patching and fixing my coat. So there's got to be some feelings here. Uh, Yeah, well, (laughs) she repairs the coat and prays to God that their first client be blessed with a blessed year. Um, And then they mention, yeah, uh, then they mention she's been inhaling germs this whole time and her room is super cold and then she goes to bed. So, you know, apparently these are the check marks for catching disease 
Inhaling germs, check. Cold room, check. Uh, so all the women in the audience are <gasps> and grabbing their whoever dates uh, arm like, oh my gosh, this is scary. <laughs> yes. Yeah. David awakens in the morning, inspects his coat, and he, he like really goes over it and he puts it on. He's He's got a cough. So now this is the first we've seen him with this cough. Uh, he calls for Maria and asks who fixed his coat while he's having breakfast and asks if Maria could go get her. And he seems like he's pleased. And so she's excited and she goes and gets Edith and brings Edith back. And when she shows up, he rips out all of the repairs she did and laughs in her face. And he's like, it's a shame you put so much effort in this because I've grown used to it being like crap. Um, and really then she makes kind of the bastard he's become. Yes. Uh, she makes a request. Come back in a year and let me know how your year went because I prayed for you. And he's like, God doesn't care. God doesn't care about your prayers. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about your requests. I'll be back and you'll see. He doesn't care about your twaddle. Yes, your <laughs> twaddle. <laughs> yes. And no, that's not a word for genitalia of any kind. Right. It's just, it's an old timey word for your I, nonsense. I remember my grandparents actually using it. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're back to the present. And George is reminding David of his obligation to be Death's driver, and he's going to force David to go see Edith because she's dying from consumption she caught from him, and he owes her a visit before she dies. And so this is where David's like, uh uh-uh, and he jumps back into his old body like he's hiding. Right. And then George is like, okay, I got to do this officially. He pulls up his hood and says, Captive, take leave of thy prison. And at this point, David looks down at his body and he's like, ah, I guess I'm dead. Yeah. So George is like, yeah, and you got to become the driver of this thing. And David, like an idiot, decides he's going to go wrestle with death. So he runs over to fight with George and George pretty effortlessly just like ties his hands and his legs up and knocks him down and then picks him up like he weighs nothing. Yeah. And sets him in the carriage. So I don't think David had a chance in that fight. No, not against death. I, there's other stories about people fighting, wrestling death. That. Yes. Um, and and there, uh, these parts, uh, parts one, two, three, there were, I, again, I don't know if it was a time, whatever, but there's several other little sections that just get a little long. They just keep going over and over and over the same information that we already have, and the scene just stretches out. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that does add to the overall length, but I, I really think some of it could have been shortened a bit and still kept all the same story. In that. It probably been a little scarier. Looking back on it. Yeah, it would have done well with a good edit, but at the time, the amount of effort that went into every scene they filmed and the amount of cost that went into every scene right. that they filmed, I can see them saying, no, we shot it. It's going in the damn movie. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> I, I Can you imagine them coming up to 100 years and seeing budgets of 500 million and yeah. the movies making half a billion dollars and whatever, you know? Yeah. That was, that was the budget of all of Scandinavia in 1921. <laughs> right. Uh, that was the end of part three. Um. Edith can sense that someone has come to visit her, and she sits up all excited. Uh, George gets up and leads David, the bound David, into the house. And it's really kind of cool because Edith's mother and Gustafsson are hanging out in the front room, and George walks right through the door and walks right past them, and they don't even acknowledge that he's there. Um, so Edith, he goes right into Edith's bedroom and she's excited that someone's coming. And then she realizes that it's an agent of death and she tells him, I'm not scared to die, but she regrets not getting to see David before she does. And, and she tries to put him off a little longer. She's like, give me a day's grace for there's someone I must talk sense into. And death is like, yeah, sure. This is the most easygoing death that I've seen in any. (laughs) Oh, he when he comes in, he tosses David onto the floor, so she doesn't know that David's there. Right. David is hearing all of this, 
She claims that she's responsible for his sorry state and that he is the man that she loves. And then George tells her, look, I would give you this time, but it's too late. You hold no sway over this man. You have tried and tried, but he is a lost cause. And you see a lot of good overacting in David right here. Yes, yes. Well, it goes into another flashback, and we see all the time she tried to help him, and he was just a douchebag to her. Um, She's at the bar, passing out flyers for the Salvation Army. He's crumpling him up. Um, He's accused by someone's wife as being a bad influence on her husband. She appeals to David's brother. Now, this harkens back to where you're like, I don't even know who these people are. Right. Um, It took me like the third time through to realize that was his brother in the bar and she's appealing to him to come to the Salvation Army meeting. And David says, yeah, go, go and be saved. I'll come and watch. And so his brother leaves. And when he does, brilliantly, they go back to the circular framing and zoom in really tight on him. So he is all alone. He's just there drinking a drink. He's left in the bar drinking a drink by himself. He has no one. I mean, that's really what they were getting with, with this whole framing thing. Yeah. And, and a side note on that, some of these techniques last up through the sixties and into the seventies. Oh uh, yeah. The, the, the spotlight on women, especially their faces, eyes and stuff, and the smudging with Vaseline to make things look odd. And uh, Star Trek even did the, the, the vocal thing occasionally. Yeah. 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 And it it, literally, it was like cardboard with a coal cut out. Uh-huh. Like yeah. what, you, what a kid would do almost now, you know? Uh, I love that, those types of things. Yes. 1921 was just our children with a, with an iPhone. Yeah. Um, This scene uh, is the rally, and this is where we find out what a complete douchebag that David Holm has become. Um, they're... They're having the rally, they're playing music, they're singing. Um, and David Holmes sees this woman who has consumption. She has socially distanced herself away from everybody. And he Before comes over. a hundred years later, except. Yes. <laughs> Again, Spanish flu has already been through. Yeah. So, And they weren't, well, there were people that didn't believe it, but that's a whole other discussion for another time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, he comes over and he like yells at her. He's like, you should be coughing among all these people. I have consumption. And who are they to think they're better than, than us who have it? I hope yeah. they all get it. And yeah, Edith, yeah, you say that now. <laughs> Edith comes to his rescue. Like to this lady, she's like, oh, he's just amusing himself. He's not as wicked as he really seems. And she asks him to stay at the Salvation Army so she can challenge him again. And he says he would, but he's been combing Sweden looking for someone, and he wouldn't say who it was. But at the Salvation Army rally, there happens to be this mysterious woman who was watching him. And Edith sees her and goes over and confronts her, and the woman admits that she is his wife and caretaker of their two children. And there's this scene with both of them in it, where like Edith is taken aback because here's this man that she loves and here's his wife. Um, and then she just, she does the right thing, you know, the, the right thing. And right. she's like, you've got to take him back. It's the only way we can, you know, save him. Which, you know, is probably the part they would change in today's. <laughs> yeah. Um, Edith hassles her until she finally says yes, and Gustafsson is set to take David, who's all cleaned up, wearing a hat and a suit, to see Anna and the children as a surprise. And he shows up, and as soon as he steps inside the room, this is one of those things like um, in Audition, where the guy walks into the abandoned uh, dance studio and just automatically takes his shoes off. For as much of a, as, of a shit as David is, he walks into this house and he takes his hat off as soon as he walks in because that's just a socially appropriate thing you're supposed to do. Right. He just does it automatically. And, and, then, and, and honestly, I would bet that that's so ingrained in the filmmakers and actors, they never even thought about it. Whereas if they had thought about it and he left the hat on, that would just kind of show his character there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. It probably wasn't even considered. It's one of those little 
uh, you know, little Easter egg plot hole things. Just one of those things he's going to do. Um, yeah. He sees Anna and Edith physically puts his hand in hers and they stand there. Um, and then Anna, Anna seems like she's contrite and she's, you know, like apologizing. And that's the end of the scene and the end of that last, that part. And then we are to section five, the final piece. Yes. And the it's, climax. yes, it is, it is fine. It is still the flashback, but it's the recent past. This is, Edith has been sick now for a while and it's been pneumonia that she's had since last New Year's Eve. And Gustafsson and Maria are trying to hide the truth about how David and Anna Holm are because she's so sick. And then we find out what they mean. Um, David comes home drunk while Anna is sewing and, and the door is locked and he just starts kicking it. And she opens it to let him in so he won't wake the kids. And he is a belligerent asshole. And then he heads over to his kids while they're sleeping and flicks one of them in the face while they're sleeping. Then he purposely starts to cough on them in an effort to give them consumption. Yeah. And that's too much for Anna. She finally steps in, rebukes him, and he takes the cloth she was sewing, coughs it, licks it, and then throws it back into her face. So, so I guess, you know, that did kind of show what he's like, whether he took his hat off or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, he heads into the kitchen and he's going through stuff. And it made me wonder if he's looking for money because yeah. he's like going through these pots, you know, and you hear it used to be a thing that like old wives would keep money hidden in a jar somewhere in the kitchen, you know, their egg money or whatever. My father did stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so she locks the door when he goes in and this shows you how much more quality the doors were back then than they are now. She locks the door and starts to bundle the kids up to get them out of there. And he tries the door and finds that it's locked and goes over to the wood cupboard, pulls out an ax and just starts to hack at the door. It reminded me of the shining. Stanley Kubrick has credited this scene for that famous. Really? Here's, yes. This, I was waiting for David to stick his head in the hole. He didn't, but. This was the impetus for that scene in The Shining with Here's Johnny. Well, I mean, that's the first thing I thought of. Yep. And I also thought it was kind of funny. Besides, like you said, the doors like were solid and held back. But the whole time he's doing it, she's bundling the kids up, looking over and bundling the kids, looking over. And I'm like, lady, just run. <laughs> Forget about yeah. the kids up. And and that was so interesting because like their clothes are so complex back then, right? She's <laughs> sitting there like just she didn't even finish one of them by the time he finally got through the door, and it took him right. a long time to get through the door. Um and she faints. And he shoes the kids to bed and wakes her up, and you're like, Oh, was the fainting something? Is he like turning a new leaf? And he's like you're not going to be able to run away so easy this time. And he's, I mean, he's just like being a complete evil bastard is yeah. what it is. Yeah. She asks him if he hasn't had enough revenge and then it fades to black and we're back in the present. And David Holm is listening to all of this. And Edith is tormenting herself, blaming herself for the sorry state of his soul because she's the one who brought them back together again. And now she's, begging for an extension and she loves him more now than she ever did in the past. And he manages to somehow break his bonds and crawl over to the bed. And when he touches her hand, she can see him and he seems truly contrite. And George pulls up his hood. And he's like captive. Ye of loving heart. Take leave of thy prison. It, I, I was waiting for uh, um Whoopi Goldberg and uh, what's his name uh, from uh Ghost dancing, yeah. Patrick Swayze. It, it was very much like those scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, when George says that, she sits back and she dies. And George tells David they need to go because those who will come to collect her soul will be there shortly. So apparently, there's not just one guy who collects the souls of the dead. There's just the one guy that you don't want to see coming to get you, and then the other good people. Yeah, which I then. I, I thought about that. I'm like, cause either they said it or I read it or something that was kind of based on a, a legend of whatever. 
I'm like, wow, that that's that could really be a good series, a TV show, a book series, whatever. That the carriage drivers of death, the good and bad, that and possibly even more than one. You know, kind of like what was that TV show with uh, the Reapers, um, with Mandy Patinkin, um, uh, that focused on the like teenage girl that died with the toilet seat hitting her, and uh, they were all death uh, Reapers. I'll look it up, maybe put it in the show notes. But I was like, wow, that could be an interesting, fun anthology adventure series or something you know oh yeah you could do it every week kind of thing yeah. yeah telling the stories they used to have westerns like that like the gun where everybody who got the gun you would see that week their story of what right happened. right so, oh what was that called the one with the gun i thought it was just called the gun there's a comic book series too that is that is like that yeah it's i mean it's a common type of thing but i thought the death carriage would be a interesting yeah spin uh now they're back in the carriage and george tells david and here it is we're gonna tie the whole story up in in a bow he he george tells david he wishes he could teach the world a new year's eve prayer and it's the whole moral of the story lord please let my soul come to maturity before it is reaped then the carriage heads to David Holmes' house, much to his dismay. And David Holmes is like, what are we doing here? Wait a second. No one's dying in here. Why are we here? And yeah, which is funny because, you know, a bit ago he was trying to kill his kids. And yeah, now he's, he's redemption. Giving them consumption and stuff. Um, He goes in and Anna is there and she's looking at her kids asleep and she's like, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. And she's poisoning herself and her kids in a pot of tea. She's like mixing poison into the tea. And, and David's like, you've got to stop this. And George is like, it's my job to just watch and wait. That's what I'm here to do. I can't interfere with the lives of the living. David's freaking out. And in the end, he falls on his knees, literally falls to his knees and prays to God, this whole giant prayer of contrition. Are you still there? This one's on me, I think. Let's see if it re- if it catches back up. Up. Oh, okay, I reconnected. Hi there. <laughs> what happened? My my Wi-Fi will do this periodically, where it'll just take thirty seconds and disconnect everyone in the house. Oh well, that's nice if it's middle of the night. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's really weird, and then it just comes back on, and you're like, oh crap. So this, I'm happy to say, it's the first time it's ever actually happened while yeah. we've been recording. So yeah. So anyway, so you were just saying the the, the driver says he has to. Uh, just watch. Yes, and David falls literally falls to his knees and is praying to God this whole prayer of contrition. Just please, God, prevent these deaths. Um, but God does not directly intervene. God doesn't like come in like make the teapot explode or anything like that. Instead, David's soul is returned to his body and he awakens. And David returns home in time to save everyone's life. Yes. And become a loving husband and father, and that is the end of the film. And like I said, a Christmas redemption story. Yes, the lines of Christmas Carol. Um, and shoot, I forget what I was going to say. Oh, I find it very interesting. At they talked a lot about God and Jesus, and they were praying. So, death, the carriage drivers—they're all basically in the service of God. They're they're working. You know, they're another yeah. job you can get instead of angel. <laughs> yes. I I also found it really interesting because, and I've noticed this is like a pretty common trend lately, um, like with Supernatural or like with Lucifer and all these other series. They talk about God and the devil, but they always shy away from the whole full-on Christianity thing. Jesus yeah. is never mentioned. They right. won't touch never. that. Right. Yeah. And like in Lucifer, for 
crying out loud, you're talking about the angels of heaven. They refer to God as their father, you know, like they are his children. And it's like, hmm, didn't God have another son that he at one point in time sent to earth? And I I get it. You know, it's like the third rail, you know, on the subway car. You don't want to touch it because it's really hot. Well, what I thought it was actually is that the Old Testament is in the public domain, but the New Testament is still on the <laughs> That's copyright. right. Yeah, it's it's a matter of yeah, who has the rights to it. Um, right. <laughs> well, and this this you know this is prior time, way back when he literally he prays to God, he prays to Jesus. You know, he doesn't know which one to pray to, so he mentions them both. I mean, that's literally in his prayer. He's like, God or Jesus, I, it's just someone stop this from happening kind of thing. Easter Bunny. <laughs> yeah. And then God's like, nope, go do it yourself. Right. So he does. So it's a very tragic story. Uh, well, redemption, but I mean, you know, it's got some you know, pretty heavy parts. Again, the story itself could be used in a movie today. You know, anyone listening, just, you know, if there's... <laughs> Best yet, a student who is in school. This would be a great thing to remake. Yes. Uh, Do not remake Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's only 30 years old. This thing's been around for 100 years. Pick it up and run with it. Yeah. I mean, it's been in the Criterion Collection, but it's still something 99% of the people probably have never seen or heard of. Yeah. And I just... It's so fascinating to me, like back in 1921, they take this paragon of of virtue, like, I don't want to say the hero of the story, because the story is about an anti-hero, really. Yeah. David Holm is the hero of the story, but Sister Edith still dies at the end. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like... Well, you can't keep her alive, because she yearns for him, so now you got a three-way triangle thing going. you got a love triangle going on. Yeah. The Phantom Carriage 2. Two. <laughs> <laughs> poor Gustafson or George's he's still stuck as the carry driver for some years like damn it he told me one year I did think about that too because David goes back to his body yeah. George is still stuck as the driver yeah and they they said it's a hundred years for every day so I'm like that's 365,000 years of feel yeah it and that makes sense because if you're the only the one guy driving the carriage, time's got to slow down because you've got a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, yeah. Not as many people back then, but still. Yeah. Yeah, they have to have at least like four carriages now, right? Yeah. I mean, come on. They probably put in, you know, jet engine. Yeah. There you go. Update it like Santa Claus has been. Yeah. Well, that is uh, the Phantom Carriage. Yeah. Good, good, good one. And, you know, for the silent film choice of our movies so far. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, again, one of the main reasons, like I, I can, I can see people already, you know, well, why'd you do this? And not Nosferatu. And a Steve's already seen Nosferatu. Right. I'll guarantee it. Absolutely. Cause he loves him. Some vampires. Well, yeah. That was one of the first vampire movies. And two, I, I don't like how it, the over-the-top acting that occurs in Nosferatu. That's what I found so fascinating because the question was always like, could they act well back then? And you look at the Phantom Carriage and yeah, they actually could. Yeah. It was not, what wasn't a question of their acting ability. It was the direction that they were given. Yep, exactly. And you know, again, our, our edict for doing these are movies that most people have. Right. Seen. Yeah. Uh, and Nosferatu people know that. I mean, they have t-shirts with Nosferatu. So that's too pop culture for us. Yeah, someone's got a tattoo of him. It's too late. Yeah, I want to see right. the guy who's got a tattoo of the carriage. You know, it would be a cool tattoo. Yeah. I mean, the carriage and the emaciated cool. horse. Yeah. It, it, but isn't it also weird how the Phantom Carriage is a cool concept. The movie was good, especially for the time. You know, but it didn't carry into the modern day the way Nosferatu had. But, you know, Nosferatu had Dracula backing it up. But still, it just it's interesting sociologically to see what stays and what doesn't. She thinks my vampire is sexy. Is what it both <laughs> my, my phantom carriage, my death carriage is sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Country songs for Halloween. That's right. <laughs> so um, what's that? Oh, what? 
I was just going to say, what's next? What's and next? The next movie um, I picked because Steve is not a huge fan of major um, titles for horror movies. Like, you don't like the big house, big budget horror movies. Not as much. Not usually. Um, And people are like, hey, well, people. There's not that many American films you're putting out there. We're doing Mama, which has a, the star, someone Steve's going to recognize. I, uh, yep, I did. It's, uh, I think it's Columbia. Uh, it's a major movie house yes. that did it. Um, and it certainly looks like an American-made film. And we're going to shatter all of that when we <laughs> review it when it comes up next time. Yes. But the thing is, a major name and bigger production, but I didn't remember it, didn't recognize it. Uh, you know, those give you some of the best. That's oh, absolutely. Yep. So that's next time. Next time. All right. Do, 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 do. Same time, same bat channel. <laughs> next time on Horror Lasagna. We need, we need a, somebody to do a good voiceover a, like yeah, that. Yeah, good outro, yeah. <laughs> Later. All right, take it easy. slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise again.